Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us from the Weekly Standard is Bill Crystal. And uh, Bill, I get a sense that there are some of the people running for the Republican nomination who think we're lucky to have them in the race. I would have put Donald Trump in that group by himself, but someone else uh, jumped in this week. Yeah, Jeb Bush, I guess last night in an interview with John Harwood, said, I'm taking a risk of trying to appeal to their hopes and dreams. I don't dislike Jeb Bush, but I've got to say, you hear someone say that, and it's so smugly self-righteous. Uh, he's Mr. Hopes and Dreams. And it's a risk because, you know, the rest of us, we're kind of into anger and resentment, but he deserves credit as he pats himself on the back. I do think this, this more than his last name and more than, you know, particulars of his record that people don't like on immigration and other issues, I think this is the resistance to Bush. There's a kind of, he has, he seems to convey a sense, maybe it's unfair, but he said this, and it Indeed, his staff tweeted it out, so they were kind of proud of it. Um, he seems to convey a sense that he thinks he's kind of too good for us and is doing us a favor by running. There's also the echoes of what many of us have not liked about the GOP establishment for years, the willingness to lose politely. And, you know, Donald Trump is absolutely the antidote to, to losing politely. He obviously doesn't like to lose and there's nothing polite about him. And if you give me the choice between those two, I have to tell you, Donald Trump looks much better. You know, I always come back to this finding uh, that we had one of our weekly standard reader polls. It wasn't a scientific poll. It was a straw poll. People could write in, but, you know, thousands did. I think 15 percent were for Trump. So this is when he was running 25 to 30 in the general polls. So our readers are somewhat less pro-Trump. 63 percent were glad, though, that he's running. And I, I find that time and again, I talked to someone yesterday who had been involved in a different organization, similar conservative organization, though, and they had, he was talking about just the reaction to a speech he'd given. And he polled people. It was exactly the same thing. So people are happy to have Trump shaking up the Republican field. I do think he's peaked. I've been saying this for two months, and I've been a little wrong, or at least premature, but I, you'd get the sense we're a little bit on the Okay, on the and I have to interrupt, I have to interrupt at this point, because, you know, when you start talking to Donald Trump, the language gets a little uh, not family-friendly. So let's keep it clean, okay? Bill? I'll do Can my do best. No, our friend, our friend Rich Lowry really unloaded there on Fox, mm-hmm. uh, testing the limits, I suppose, of what's, what's permissible on, on uh, you know, before midnight on cable TV <laughs> or something. But the uh, Trump Trump's reaction was interesting, though. He's a pretty thin skin guy. So Jeb Bush, on the one hand, pats himself on the back and thinks he's too good for us. Donald Trump thinks he's kind of, it's illegitimate to criticize him, or he, he gets to take shots at everyone and make fun of people. But if you sort of make fun of him a little bit or point out that he got bested in the debate by Carly Fiorina, he gets all uh, hyper and uh, sensitive. It would be nice just to have a politician who's kind of thick-skinned, isn't self-righteous, and just wants to, you know, kind of win the nomination and win the presidency. But it does raise the Trump dilemma. The good thing about Trump, and I agree with the people who say they're glad he's in the race, is he focuses on winning as a virtue in and of itself. If you look at the way President Obama has chosen to govern, his governance stance has not been a look at this tradition of the separation of powers and let's look at the traditions of how the Constitution balances our interests. No, it's been, hey, I've got power. I'm going to beat you with it until someone rips it out of my hand. And so Trump is an answer to that that I think a lot of conservatives want to hear. But at the same time, when your argument is a circular argument, I'm good because I'm winning and I'm winning because I'm good, and you stop winning, 
where does Trump go? And I think that's why I think that after your nonstop predictions of Trump beat Trump, we may have finally gotten there. Is first it was Carly, now it's Rich Lowry, and that Marco Rubio got in. I mean, Donald Trump doesn't look like the alpha male, you know, lead dog anymore. He looks, he's looking more and more like just another guy running for president. And so much of his race is about how he's winning in the polls, that the moment he starts to slide in the polls, it can become a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, I think. And I was struck looking at some of the numbers. He had a big, he had a great two months. And he, you know, people who said at the beginning, well, he'll never get anywhere because he's so unfavorably viewed, even by Republican primary elect uh, voters, were turned out to be somewhat wrong because he turned out he could change their views. And people watched him and they were entertained and they decided they liked him, at least to the point of wanting him in the race and even saying they were for him for now. But I think he's kind of hit a ceiling on that. He still has an awfully high negative. He and Bush both do, actually. The two we've been talking about among Republican primary voters leave aside the general electorate. Also, Trump really does run worse against Clinton or Biden than the other Republicans. Maybe that would change because of of Trump's persuasive skills. But if you want to win, just the grounds, as you say, that Trump himself wants to be judged on, you've got to think to yourself, well, maybe Trump isn't the most likely to win in November. Yeah, I, I agree. But this brings up uh, the question about where we are now. And Jay Cost, the Weekly Standard, had a great piece a few weeks ago where he wrote essentially kind of an open letter to the conservative base and to the GOP establishment and said, look, guys, you can't win without each other, period. You have to make peace. I mean, you can scream and yell all you want, but neither of you can deliver the White House. Neither of you are a national party by yourself. And I, so I've been watching, using Jay's advice, I've been watching these candidates saying, who's shaping up as the person m- most likely to bring those two people, to those two groups together? My parameters are very simple. I will not vote for Trump and I will not vote for Bush. But everyone else is on the table for me. Every, even Pataki, theoretically, would be on the table. Who do you see, Bill, as, pos- as the most likely two or three candidates to be able to bring the two elements of the party together? Well, that's the big question. Just before answering that, I'll I'll say one other thing that I think uh, strengthens Jay's point. Um, And I try to make this point in the editorial this week. Jay Acosta actually makes it a piece in the new new issue, too, both of which are up online. Both pieces are up online. Uh, The more it looks like we might have a Joe Biden-led ticket, than a Hillary Clinton-led ticket, I think the the um, the imperative to be serious about winning gets more uh, imperative or more serious, uh, more crucial. If it's a Hillary Clinton race, it's about her to some degree, and I think she's beatable. I think at the end of the day, it's hard to see her getting above 46, 47 percent. And in a way, you don't have to worry. You could argue as much about who the Republican candidate is. Biden is a more generic Democrat, and people like you and me don't think he'd be a good president, and he's kind of a goofball. But, you know, he could get 51 percent of the vote. He doesn't put people off. His, his numbers are much better than Hillary Clinton's among the general electorate. She's at something like, I can't remember, 40-55, favorable, unfavorable, something like that, maybe a little worse. And he's at 50-34. Those are at perfectly respectable numbers for an incumbent vice president. Those are numbers which don't mean you will win, but mean you could win. So it's more important, even if you, if you think Biden might be the nominee, more important to have a strong Republican who can unite the party, fight to win, have a strong uh, governing agenda going forward, and that also reflects people's sense that we need a big agenda for change because the country's on the wrong track. So who is this? I and mean, that's the big question. I'd say Fiorina is, has had a good run and is plausible. Marco Rubio is plausible. Ted Cruz, you know, is more from the conservative side of the party. The establishment would have to swallow hard to accept him. But he's an able candidate, and I could sort of imagine him, I can imagine him still doing it. After that, actually, it does get a little bit 
uh, slight. You know, for all the talk about what a great field this is, what a deep field it is, maybe Christie Kasich, I don't know, but you know, for all that, as I say, for all the talk about the field, when you really think hard about who is likely to be a winning Republican presidential nominee in 2016 of the current field, at least, there are relatively few names, I think. And two of the names that I, you would have thought a few months ago might have entered that arena, Walker and Perry, are out. Because there are plenty of reasons for Walker to be supported by Tea Partiers, and no reason for the establishment to reject him. Perry, a lot of heat with the Tea Party, you know, conservatives, and the establishment, no reason to reject him. And they're both gone. And what if that ends up being the legacy of the Donald Trump summer fall, you know, uh, whatever media swoon? Is that a couple of the strongest consensus candidates end up getting knocked out of the field? Trump goes away. Yeah, you know, it's a very good point. I mean, it's a, someone who looks like a consensus candidate, acceptable to everyone, can also fall between two stools and have no really strong support. And the current system does not reward second and third choice candidates. This has been a, a issue that Jay Cost and Jeff Anderson have written about in our magazine, in the Weekly Standard, and elsewhere. That the current system, you know, you don't really get to stay in the race very long. Even though maybe in an old-fashioned convention setting, you'd be kind of the consensus candidate who's able to govern and pretty acceptable to everyone. Now you get knocked out and the sort of leaders of each wing of the party stay in, but they're Maybe that makes it harder to unite the party later on. I don't think we're quite at that stage, because there are plenty of people still in the race, obviously, and Walker and Perry had problems specific to their campaigns. But it does mean that, uh, you know, I think especially Rubio, Fiorina, and Cruz, I would say those three now face an interesting moment in their campaign. They can keep doing what they're doing, and they're doing okay, and they have a decent shot at being finalists. But one of them is going to be able to, I think, is going to uh, do a little more than just what they've been doing, really try to say, you know what, I really have an interesting agenda, big agenda for this country. That's the thing I find lacking in the candidates so far. And it's easy for me to say this on the sidelines. It's easier, it's harder to do it. But where, you know, people really want big change. They have the sense that government's totally messed up. It's, it needs to be relimited. It also needs to be re-energized. Our policies in so many areas are so off the rails. And, you know, are the candidates really speaking to that sense? Or do they seem like they're playing small ball? And the uh, candidate that I'm most watching right now, most interesting watching, is Carly Fiorina, uh, because you don't know where, how she's going to respond when she has that really bad day. We haven't seen a really bad day for her yet. Obviously, when she ran for Senate, she had a very bad day. But as a national candidate, I have to say, Bill, so far, so good when it comes to uh, being attacked. She gets the attack on the Planned Parenthood thing. The media get the story wrong. They falsely accuse her of lying. She jumps right on and has, here's the video and, and just blows their argument away. The HP uh, case, she has a reasonable case. You can disagree, disagree with it. but she when, And she also very wisely puts it up on video again so it's right there it's easy to consume uh and so i'm 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 so far she seems to be able to handle adversity which is a key part of this race yeah no i very much agree with that especially the attacks from liberals and the mainstream media she seems very good at turning those against the left and you know thereby getting a lot of support among conservatives i especially i agree on the planned parenthood attack and some of the other criticisms of her too I think the question will be when people discover things. You know, she's been she's been talking about politics for the last ten years. She was a surrogate for McCain. She's been on a million TV shows. She's said things that she probably doesn't quite agree with now, or that she shouldn't. She might not have wished she had said even at the time. 
I guess she's on record, uh, uh, seeming to defend an individual mandate in mm-hmm. health care, sort of like Obama's mandate um, uh, in 2013. Uh, those will be a little tougher for her. The, the people will try to nick her from the right. The other teams are shopping oppo on Carly Fiorina. That's interesting to me. Our reporters at the Weekly Standard are getting emails, right. you know, off the record from operatives, and it's legit. This happens in every campaign, and, and it's legit stuff. It's it's actual clips and quotes. It's not making stuff up, but it's guerrilla stuff. But, you know, did you know that Carly Fiorina said this, for example, in 2013? So that tells me that the other campaigns are worried about her and their own internal polling, to the degree they're doing some, is showing what would, I think we've always thought, not only that she's now getting actual first-place support in, you know, 9, 10, 11% range, maybe even a little higher in some places, but also that she's always been a pretty strong second and third place finisher, and so people could start to go to her uh, as she gains momentum. So I, I am struck how much the other campaigns are worried about Carly Fiorina. And uh, Bill Crystal, uh, they'll be continuing to worry about her, I predict, for a while. Uh, thanks so much for joining us to wrap up the, this week's uh, political news. I appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure, Michael. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.